But let me pray again. We'll look at the scripture. Father, thanks that you love us so much. And Lord, the beauty of the world around us, especially here at Fall for me, just is another reminder of your great, great goodness. Father, as we talk about your word and your son this morning, the ultimate gift, the ultimate sign of your commitment to us, your grace and mercy and goodness poured out on us, would you help us to take some things in that would be helpful in us seeing your son more fully and enjoying him more fully, Lord, in expectation of seeing him one day and living with him in his eternal kingdom. In his name, amen. Hope you've got a study sheet again on any of the scriptures that we cover will be on there this morning. Um, let me read from a, uh, this is a newspaper article. It's a little dated, but it's from South Bend, Indiana. This was in the New York Times, December 14th, 2001. By the way, if you want to look this up, the website is on your study sheet. Uh, this is kind of a big deal. If you're a football fan, this is a football story. So the story goes like this, and I'll read parts of it just so that I get some of their terminology in uh, five days after naming George O'Leary its new head football coach, the University of Notre Dame announced today that O'Leary had resigned suddenly after admitting to falsifying parts of his academic and athletic background. Does anyone else here remember this story? It's been a few years, but it, it stood out when it occurred. <clears throat> For two decades, O'Leary, at the time 55 years old, formerly the coach at Georgia Tech, exaggerated his accomplishments as a football player at the University of New Hampshire and falsely claimed to have earned a master's degree in education. Those misstatements, uh, he called it resume padding later. Misstatements is a nice word for a lie. This was resume padding is how he described it later. Uh, followed him for two decades. He put this stuff out early in his own resume information and he's been living on it for over 20 years when this event occurred. O'Leary's undoing and the university's humiliation took place in a matter of days, beginning with a series of telephone calls placed this week by the union leader in Manchester, New Hampshire. They're just a newspaper trying to report a feature article on O'Leary, right? Home state, home school, we're going to do a piece on him. He's going to the big times. What it discovered was that former coaches and players at the University of New Hampshire could not remember O'Leary playing there. Even though biographical information in various media guides at teams he later coached claimed he had earned varsity letters there from 66 to 68. When Notre Dame officials contacted O'Leary, this was interesting too, the story, they hear, hey, this thing about your varsity letters there doesn't check out. The AD sitting down with him asking about it, he says, yeah, you're right, you know, that, that wasn't true. At that point, they were going to keep him. But then the AD thoughtfully says, by the way, anything else that we should know of right now? Well, yeah, by the way, I didn't earn that master's degree either. And it was at that point they said, oh, we're done. We're, we're done with this process. He said at the time, O'Leary said, due to a selfish and thoughtless act many years ago, I have personally embarrassed Notre Dame, its alumni and fans. The integrity and credibility of Notre Dame is impeccable, and with that in mind, I will resign my position as head football coach effective immediately. I mean, how embarrassing, right? This was terrible for him and for the university. Now, put this in context. This is one of the, the cherries of coaching jobs, right, in the nation to coach football at Notre Dame. 
And so this is kind of going to be the highlight of his life. And for Notre Dame, here's this upstanding school, great tradition, great heritage. You'd think they would cross T's and dot I's, wouldn't you? In hiring a coach to that position, singularly to that position, you'd think. But they didn't. They didn't check out his references. They didn't follow through on his background. But the newspaper did. And you know what? The newspaper wasn't doing anything unusual, right? So the newspaper was simply going to eyewitnesses. They were going to people who knew this guy in college and just saying, hey, what would you think of him and his playing career? And, you know, and they followed up on, I have a master's degree from this university. When we're just following up. The, the reporters are just doing what we would consider due diligence. Nothing outstanding, nothing out of the ordinary on this. They're just doing what reporters do. They're just following the facts. They're just vetting the story. They're verifying the claims. That's all they were doing. The university didn't do any of it. The newspaper did. And this is what came of it. So those terms like exaggerated, false claims, integrity, credibility came out of this story. And it was because someone exaggerated aspects of their life and someone else failed to look into that and see if that was really the case. All of this comes down to that. Now, this is not a huge story, right, in the annals of time. And the truth is, you know, life's gone on. Notre Dame, I don't know how many fans are in here, the Fighting Irish, you know. Six and one this year, Brian Kelly, they're doing great. But you know, O'Leary went on, coached again for the Vikings for two years. He's been at the Central Florida University. And frankly, he's done quite well. He's won numerous awards. He's been very successful down there. So, you know, on, on the big picture landscape, this is kind of a milestone. It, it's a blip, right? Life's gone on. But if you and I are considering something that has more life-changing implications, do you and I do what the newspaper guys did? So if we hear a claim, this could be anything, right? This could be all kinds of things. If I'm buying a house, you know, do I give due diligence? Do we search for the mortgage? That it's, uh, the, the deed on the property is clear. If I'm hiring you, do I call those phone numbers you gave me to follow up on your references? Do I check with your past employers? You know, or if you're uh, looking for employment at a place, do you check them out and say, no, this is a place I want to be? It's not just something I heard, but I verified what kind of company this is. Or think more importantly, if I'm going to get hitched to a spouse for the rest of my life, have I asked them the hard questions? And I, do I know where they stand? And it's not just they're, they're giving me their best version of themselves when reality is something different. Or guys, ultimately really this, do we do due diligence when we're choosing who our God is and who we're staking our hopes on for eternity and our future? That'd be the big one. You know, forget Notre Dame football. That would be the big one. Do we give due diligence in those arenas of life that are going to cost us dearly if we find somebody's been falsifying and we didn't catch it. This is all to introduce a series today uh, called The Son of Man, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And we're, uh, we're checking, if you will, the credibility of someone's witness to Jesus. That's sort of what this is about or where we're going with this this morning. If we said ultimately what's the chief um, piece of testimony or evidence 
For Jesus claims to be God the Son on earth that had the power to forgive sins, had the power to give you and I life and a, and a home in eternity with joy forevermore. Uh, the resurrection's probably it, right? Singularly, nobody else rose from the dead and stayed alive and went back to heaven alive. Never happened, no one else ever. So singularly, we tend to say the resurrection is that point of evidence that you just can't get around. It's attested to in all kinds of ways. And that's true. But one of the key testaments to the resurrection is the scriptural testimony. And if we're basing our, our assumption or our buy-in to the theme of the resurrection, and the prime candidate for the testaments to that resurrection are the scriptures themselves, how much confidence do we have in the Bible? In its totality or in any portion of it? Have we done due diligence? Have we looked it over and come to the conclusion that the Bible is really trustworthy? And that's where we're going this morning as we start this series on Luke. We're going to, through the end of this year, through the fall when I'm teaching, with a couple of exceptions on some particular Sundays, but we're going to do the birth narratives of John the Baptist and Jesus. That'll take us up to Christmas. And then afterwards, we're not going verse by verse through all of Luke's Gospel uh, that would take me years, frankly. But what we're going to do is highlight the use of the term Son of Man and what Jesus makes of that when He says He's the Son of Man and the subjects attached to that. What does that mean and what should we glean from that? So my hope for this series is that we have whatever level of confidence we already have, that our level of confidence in the Scriptures is greater after today and after this series than it was before. That would be a good place to start. I also hope that we come to find in Luke's Gospel a familiar place that we can go to hang our hat for comfort or peace or assurance just because we've spent some time in it collectively. Ultimately, really we're talking about seeing Jesus more fully and clearly and this, this has at least a dual sense. It's both as the hope of Israel's Messiah, which is no small thing, but also as our hope too. Most of us here are Gentiles, and what kind of hope do we have in Jesus, that one who came as Israel's Messiah, but now offers himself to the world as the Son of Man? And also just becoming more personally and vitally connected to Christ by faith that's upheld by a stronger, deeper, broader level of confidence in the Scriptures themselves. So, this morning we're just scratching the surface. We're going to look at the first four verses in Luke's Gospel. And let me say this too before I start. Uh, only two points this morning. Several sub-points, but only two points. But the first point with many sub-points is like a book report. And you're going to be tempted to check out, but don't. Because it's the who, what, where, why. It's sort of the the uh, newspaper account, okay, of how we got Luke's Gospel and why that matters to us. And not only Luke's Gospel, of course, but the book of Acts as well. So if you're tempted to check out because we're just talking about background, don't check out because there's a huge uh, element. There's something to gain by, by looking at carefully, as these reporters did with the hiring of that coach, to how we got Luke's Gospel. So we're just going to start with some basic reporting after we look at the first four verses. I'm reading from the ESV. This is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So Luke starts this way, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So that's Luke's introduction. We want to answer these questions. Who is Luke? What do we know about him? Why should we listen to him? Why should we care what this guy Luke had to say? Why did he write this gospel? What was he hoping to accomplish with this specific gospel? And what was his methodology? Why should I think that Luke's gospel is accurate? Why should I think his gospel is different than O'Leary's resume? Maybe Luke's just padding Jesus' resume. Why should I think his gospel is credible? So who is Luke and what do we know about him? You know, Luke's gospel doesn't say Luke wrote it, does it? Now, when you open your Bible up to Luke's gospel, it says Luke's gospel or something like that across the first page, right? But that's not Luke's gospel. That's just something we put up there. How do we know Luke wrote Luke's gospel? Um, we, uh, we engineer backwards on this one. So if you look at Acts 1, verse 1, the author of the book of Acts says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The first book is Luke's Gospel, right? Because in this opening it says, it's written for Theophilus. And Acts says, it's written for Theophilus also. And it's the second work. Now, even though Luke isn't named as the author of Acts, again, we're going to extrapolate some things as we chase this down. So, we know the author of Acts is the author of the Gospel of Luke as well. We also know that the author of Acts is someone that traveled with the Apostle Paul. And we know this because we get these personal pronouns, we and us, in Acts' account starting in chapter 16, verse 10, uh, starting up again in Acts 20, going through chapter 21, and again in Acts 27 and 28. In other words... The guy that wrote the book of Acts and also the Gospel of Luke, he traveled personally with Paul. Now, he doesn't name himself in in Paul's accounts, but we also know that Paul, in his epistles in Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Philemon, Paul names his traveling companions. So the traveling companions Paul names that are also named in Acts aren't the author because the author in Acts didn't list his name. So Luke's our guy. Luke is the guy that fits both of those protocols, if you will. So we have just within the text of the Scriptures themselves, we say Luke's our guy. The other thing is this. The early church said Luke's our guy too. Um, Eusebius in the 300s writes from eyewitness testimony about 150, everybody in the early church says Luke is our guy. Luke wrote those two books. Luke wrote Acts and he wrote Luke's Gospel. This would make this makes Luke the only Gentile author of a book of the Bible, or in this case of two books of the Bible. When you read Proverbs or some other parts of the Bible, the author, the Jewish author, may quote or reference a Gentile source, but these would be the only books that a Gentile author, that God used a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, to write a book, or two books, in this case, of the Bible. The early church also says that Paul was from Antioch, a Gentile from Antioch. And that's important because Paul's missionary journeys start from Antioch. 
So it's likely that Luke knew Paul from those early days before the first missionary journey in the city of Antioch. The early church also said that Luke was a physician and Paul calls Luke a physician in Colossians 4, verse 14. Now as to when this was written, because Paul's death is not recorded in the book of Acts, and Paul was executed by Rome about 67 A.D., we assume this was written before that. So sometime before 67, most people will say sometime in the 60s, 62 to 64, 65, am I saying B.C. or A.D.? 64 or so A.D. is is probably when this book, Luke, was written, and Acts as, as well, since it was the second account. Because Luke was Paul's traveling companion, it was assumed, Paul still being alive, that if Paul had an axe to grind with something Luke wrote, he would have said so. There's a sense in which Acts and Luke both carry Paul's blessing because he's the guy Luke has been traveling with. So if Luke was recording something that Paul disagreed with theologically or factually, Paul would have been saying something about that. The early church took in the Gospel of Luke and Acts right away in part because who Luke was connected to. You know, when we, we read Mark's Gospel, we understand that Mark's Gospel is Peter's account of Jesus' life. But Mark worked with Peter, so Mark's Gospel was readily accepted also because we understand it's coming from Peter. If there's a problem, Peter would have told us Mark's is an accurate account And that's true for these two books as well with their connection to Paul as well. So who wrote this book? So it looks like a Gentile who's a physician who traveled extensively with Paul and personally therefore lived through much of what goes on in the book of Acts from chapter 16 on. So Luke's our guy. And what's he up to? What's he trying to accomplish with this gospel? You remember if you read John's Gospel, John 20, 31 tells us why he wrote it, right? Right there. You don't have to figure, you don't have to scratch your head. John says, I wrote these things so that you believe in the name of Jesus and believing you would have life in his name. It's right there. Well, Luke does the same thing. He tells us why he wrote this Gospel. Verse 4, he says to Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke, whose name means light-giving, intends to shed light on Jesus. So he says, Theophilus, I'm writing this account that we call Luke's Gospel now. I'm writing this account so you'll know with certainty that the things you've already heard are true. You can count on them. In this case, Luke is the reporter. Luke is validating claims already made. He's the guy vetting this story of Jesus. Luke did not personally know Jesus. But he's the reporter coming behind and he's going to vet the story of Jesus. And he's doing so so Theophilus can say, somebody's looked into these claims. Somebody's checked the references and the story comes out true. So we can have confidence, certainty in it. Now we don't know who Theophilus is. But he's probably wealthy or he has social or political standing because... Luke says, most excellent Theophilus. And that phrase in Acts is on Paul's lips when he addresses Roman governors, Felix and Festus. So this guy was probably one of standing. He's probably also a patron to Luke, supporting him in what he's doing. 
So it's a man of standing, that's all we know. We don't know at this point if he was a believer or not. He's an interested Gentile or he's a believer, we don't know that either at this point. But he's heard about Jesus and he wants to know more. And so Luke is writing, the whole purpose for Luke's Gospel is, Theophilus, you can know for sure that the claims of Jesus are real and you can count on them. The term certainty there in the Greek means to become thoroughly acquainted with to know thoroughly, to know accurately, and to know well. Have you guys ever, uh, someone has told you something and you don't know them very well, and maybe it's something important, maybe it's an election, or it's someone's health, or it's a story that sounds incredible, and the person relating it to you, you don't know well, and you don't have a history with them, so you don't know how trustworthy they are, so you hold that story lightly, because you don't know the source, the reference. But when someone that you know and trust comes up and tells you the same thing, you have this level of confidence now. So you say, well, I heard it before. I wasn't sure. But now I know it's true because the source that's told me I know and is trustworthy. And that's what we're getting here. Luke's saying, you can count on this, Theophilus. I've looked it up. You know, I'm struck, I can't remember who I read just uh, recently, uh, it was an account of someone minimizing the integrity in the Scriptures. And if you have trouble, if you're here this morning and you're not sure what to make of elements of the Bible, maybe the first 11 chapters of Genesis, are those really true? Or Luke's Gospel or anything in between. Um, the, the difficulty for us in accepting the credibility of the claims of the Bible has nothing to do with the integrity of the Bible. Our challenges come either through ignorance or through willfulness. You know, I think it was Mark Twain who said, it's not what I don't understand in the Bible that troubles me, it's what I do. If I have a problem with the Bible and I simply don't want to submit myself to God's authority, I may say I don't believe the the credibility of the Bible. But that has nothing to do with the credibility of the Bible. That has to do with what I want or don't want. Or I might just say, as many people will, you know, the Bible's been translated so many times and it's so old and all these other, you just can't rely on it. And I'm saying, now that's the argument of ignorance because we don't have any better ancient literature than the Bible. So the text of the Bible is not the problem. So if we find ourselves today struggling, are the claims true? It's not for lack in the Bible. And the, the more you investigate, and the more thoroughly you search, and the more you look into it, you will see this thing is true and it stands up under every test. And if you're not sure about that or a particular portion of the Bible, just pray and ask God. If we're open, He'll show us. But the problem's not in the Bible. The problem's in us. Usually willfulness or ignorance. Uh, what's, what's Luke's methodology and why should we listen to him? So he's well-intentioned because he wants his friend to know the certainty of the claims of Jesus. But do we know that we can count on what he wrote down? How did he come up with the story? How did he come up with what he wrote? So what is his methodology? Look at verse 1. He says, and this is in his lifetime during his days, he says, many have already undertaken to compile a narrative of Jesus' life and miracles. Many have already undertaken to put together an account of Jesus' life, what he said and what he did. So on the very front end, Luke says there are other accounts of the life of Jesus. Now some of these might have been Gospels, like Matthew and Mark. 
And there's lots of debate. Which is the first Gospel? Who borrows from who? Nobody has a line on this. Nobody has a definitive statement on that. Not too concerned. But Luke could have been including Matthew or Mark's Gospels. But there were other accounts as well that aren't part of our Bible. But this is the point. Luke is aware of the other accounts. He's made himself aware of them. He knows what they are and what they say. In other words, he's looked at all the other accounts. He's going to put one together, and he's aware of all the other ones extant in his day as well. So he's not coming in ignorant or with blinders. He's read what other people have claimed. He's heard the other stories. That's his starting point. His second point is, verse 2, he's interacted with those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' story and life and miracles. So just like those reporters with Coach O'Leary, he's gone back to first-hand witnesses. He wasn't there himself, so the next best thing he can do is go to the folks who were. Now, let's just assume this is 64 AD when he writes, there are lots of people alive who knew Jesus. There are lots of people alive from the Gospel stories. There would be people who had been healed in Jesus' day who are still alive. And before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, those folks hung out in the area of Judah and Jerusalem. They'd still be there. So Luke is going back to those eyewitnesses and he's verifying accounts and reports. And you know, typically over time, if something is spectacular, it gets exaggerated with time. But you know, Luke is a physician. This means he's smart. Have you ever, uh, C.S. Lewis, a minor point that doesn't often get uh, stated that he brought up, which I really appreciate is, he said he thinks we tend to be guilty of a generational snobbery. And what he meant by that was we tend to think that we're smarter than the people who lived before us. And that's just not the, not the case. You know, my, my thinking is this, sin degrades our ability to reason. We don't get smarter over time, we get more dull, we get more stupid, not smarter. As a race, our abilities, I think, physically and physiologically, I think they degrade because that's the effect of sin over time. You remember before the flood, people lived forever, right? Almost a thousand years after the flood, they don't. Sin has an impact on our minds, on our brains, and our ability to use them. I don't think we're smarter today. I think we're less smart. And that we appear smarter because the knowledge that we have today is the accumulation of generation upon generation. We have the benefit of that. That doesn't mean we're smarter. It means we, got, we were given a whole lot of information that other people came up with. So Luke is a smart guy. He's a scientist in his day. That means he's well-read too. So Luke would have read Herodotus, the Greek historian. And there were, biography as a literary type was common in Luke's day and before Luke. So this is a guy who's smart, he's well-read. So when he writes this account to another Gentile person, he knows the standard is going to be things like the other biographies and Herodotus, the historians. His story, his account had better stack up with the other works of the day or they're going to be shot down. He knows this before he starts. And his patron is no doubt well connected as well. And if there are holes in Luke's account, he's going to know. So Luke isn't some Joe Blow off the street. He's been part of the story of Paul for half of that journey. He's a smart guy. He knows the stories. He's followed up with the eyewitness accounts. 
he knows his account has to stack up with the literature of the day and that he's writing to a well-placed, probably also very shrewd, smart guy also. These all mean that Luke had to produce an accurate report. If it wasn't accurate, it was not going to stand up in its own day, much less years later. So, Luke did his homework like a reporter. He vetted the story. He made sure Theophilus could count on it. Luke's is a clear-eyed, hard-headed, researched, verified account of the life of Jesus. It's nothing less than that. It's at least that, but it's nothing less than that. So you can count on Luke's gospel and Luke's account and Luke's report. By the way, too, um, because Luke traveled with Paul through at least chapter 16 on, on and off during those years, Luke saw firsthand the miracles performed through Paul. And he heard Paul's preaching. And he knew one of the key themes of Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus would be the one who would baptize in the Spirit. And Jesus is the one who promised His followers would get the Spirit. And Luke sees the Spirit present through this missionary journeys. He sees people converted. He sees miracles occurring before his eyes as Jesus said. So Luke knew that there had been a promise and Luke himself was witness to the promise fulfilled, the Spirit given, and the power of the Spirit's presence seen through those miracles. So he was a first-hand eyewitness to some of these things as well. Not Jesus' life specifically, but the things that followed with Paul. So it's a, it's a worthy account. It'll stand up to your scrutiny and mine. You can bank on it. You can count on it. You can set your life by it. The second point that I want to make just has to do with one of the phrases Luke uses throughout his gospel, and it's the way, it's one of the lenses by which Jesus meant us to see him and understand him. And it's the phrase, the Son of Man. If you look in the Old Testament, if you just do a word search for, with this as a phrase, Son of Man is used in a variety of ways. One of the ways is it's just a human being, it's a person. Uh, it's a Son of Man, as in a, a person from the human race. Uh, a descendant of Adam, as it were. So, Numbers 23.19, just one example. God is not a man that He should lie. He's not a son of man, not a human being, that He should change His mind. That's one of the ways you'll see that phrase used in the Old Testament. Another 93 times, God calls the prophet Ezekiel son of man. He's a representative of man and a representative of Israel. He's one of that collection. God calls Ezekiel son of man. The one that we want to hang our hat on this morning is as a messianic title. Son of man in the Old Testament as a phrase is a messianic title. So Psalm 8 verse 4 through 6 is the example I've got. There's others as well. In Psalm 8, and, and think of this in the day, if, if you were living before Jesus, before the resurrection, and you read Psalm 8, or if you're ignorant of part of the New Testament today, and you read Psalm 8, you might just say, wow, that's, that's neat, and the psalmist is describing mankind generally, and, and that would be true as far as that goes. And this is what he said, What is man, speaking to God, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Why do you, why do you care about us, Lord? What are we to you? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or the angels. 
You've crowned Him with glory and honor. You've given Him dominion over the works of your hands. That's Genesis 1 and 2, right? And you've put all things under His feet. In other words, man is God's vice region on the earth. That makes sense of mankind generally, and that would be true. But like many Scriptures, this not only was true in a general way, but God always intended that it would be true very specifically related to Jesus Himself. And we know this is meant ultimately to be applied to Jesus, Son of Man, Son of God, because Hebrews 2 tells us. So the writer to Hebrews, which, by the way, some people believe was also Luke, Paul writing through Luke. Uh, some people argue for Pauline uh, um, authorship for Hebrews. Many others say, no, we don't think so. But one of the arguments is Luke wrote it, and, and Paul was the guy giving him most of the theology. But Hebrews 2 says, what is man? Quoting Psalm 8, that you're mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him, um, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The author to the Hebrews is using one Old Testament text after another to show that Jesus is God the Son. And the promised Messiah and the ultimate offering and the ultimate high priest, etc., etc. But he quotes Psalm 8 here and says, this is Jesus. And it's under Jesus' feet, ultimately, that God has put all things in subjection. So it's a messianic title. The early church understood that. The key place that Jesus is referring to when he calls himself Son of Man is in Daniel 7. And by the way, this is a spectacular passage. Uh, Daniel you know, gets these visions and these, these, um, he's given ahead of time the events that are going to follow, some, in the, some that have not occurred yet. And in Daniel 7, in this vision, uh, he sees what for him was this very scary scene and in the vision, the earth is like one storm-tossed ocean. And it's windy and it's blowing. And, and out of this tumultuous ocean, like a storm going through the ocean, unrest, come these four beasts. And the beasts, the text says, represent kings and their kingdoms. And so you've got a lion with wings and you've got a bear that stands up on one side with bones in his mouth, and you've got a leopard with four wings, and then you've got this terrible creature that's it looks more mechanical than it does animal, and not sure what to make of this. And that's what Daniel is seeing. And it's kind of scary, not sure what to make. And as he sees these, these images that represent kings and their empires, he says, and then I saw the court was set. So here have been the... the the uh, empires, the kingdoms of the world, he's seen them cycle through. And then he says, uh, the court was set up in heaven. And you've got these the multitudes of multitudes in heaven. And in the midst of that, there's this throne that look, must look like a chariot because it has wheels. And the throne is on fire. And there's a river of fire pouring out of this throne. This is a unique image in Scripture. Usually if you're thinking about the throne, like Revelation, it's emerald. You know, or the river coming from the throne is water, right? Revelation 21, the river of life comes out, or Ezekiel, same thing. But here, it's a river of fire. So the thought is, the kingdoms of the world are represented, and the fiery judgment throne of God is sitting for judgment on them. And that's the picture we've got when we get to verses 13 and 14. So that's what Daniel's seen. And then he sees this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. 
And He came to the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father. And He was presented before Him, and to Him was given dominion and glory, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So see, after these four kingdoms that represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome... The last kingdom, the fifth kingdom that comes up is eternal. And this guy called the Son of Man goes up to God the Father and receives the kingdom. And when Daniel's trying to figure all this out, he's told the the vision is interpreted for him. And in verse 17 it says this, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. Verse 18, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. When the interpretation is given, he doesn't say it's Messiah. He says it's the people of God that receive the kingdom. If you go back down to verse 27, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. That's plural. That's a plural group. That's not singular. Then, His kingdom, singular, shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. So, in the previous vision of the animals, the animal represented both the individual king and his kingdom. And the Son of Man also represents the individual king and his kingdom. So he could say of one or both that the Son of Man receiving this eternal kingdom is either the saints or it's the Messiah or it's both. The king represents his subjects in the kingdom also. So, Daniel sees this man who goes before a flaming throne of fire in which the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, sits and he's given this eternal kingdom that never ends. That's the Son of Man. And he comes on a cloud. When he comes up to the Ancient of Days, he's riding on a cloud. The cloud there represents almost certainly glory. So now imagine this, plug this in to Jesus' life. So when Jesus comes to the Jewish nation that knows Psalm 8 and knows Daniel 7, and He says, I am the Son of Man, this is a very, very clear claim. This is no different than in Luke 4 when He stands up in the synagogue and quotes Isaiah 61 and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me. He's anointed Me. That's the Messianic title to preach good news to the poor. That Jesus said, I'm the Messiah in Isaiah 61 and Luke 4. When He says, I'm the Son of Man, He says, I'm the eternally reigning King that approaches the Ancient of Days and you are part of God's eternal kingdom in Me or you're not. It's Me and My subjects that will stand accepted before the Ancient of Days and the throne of fiery judgment. 25 times in Luke's Gospel, 28 times in Matthew's Gospel, I think it's 16 or maybe 13 in Mark, and a dozen in John, when those guys hear Jesus saying, I'm the the Son of Man, this is a clear, clear claim to be not only their Messiah, but the one who would ultimately stand and could stand before the Ancient of Days. This is the guy you want to know. This is the one you want to be connected to. So listen, Luke brings in this language in his Gospel. In Luke 9, you remember the transfiguration where Peter, James, and John are on that mountaintop with Jesus. 
And Jesus is transformed into his heavenly glory. And Peter's confused. And he sort of equates Elijah and Moses with Jesus and says, would you like me to make three tents for you guys? You holy trio. We'll keep you here for a while. We'll enjoy each other's company. But a cloud comes over them and a voice from heaven on the cloud says, this is my son. Listen to him. You've got a cloud and the declaration from the Ancient of Days that this is the one you need to pay attention to. Jesus precludes, as it were, Moses and Elijah. He fulfills them. He's greater than them. Or in Luke 21, 27, Jesus quotes, again, this is straight out of Daniel 7, when He's speaking about the second coming and the future of Israel, He says, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. There is no ambiguity on this for the Jews or for Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the Son of Man of Daniel 7. I'm the king of the kingdom that never ends. And those who are connected to me are the ones who enjoy this eternal kingdom with me. Last, Acts 1 verse 9, when Jesus ascends back to heaven from the Mount of Olives, He is received by a cloud. Luke's very intentional about making sure we get this connection. Daniel 7, throughout Jesus' life. So, when Luke writes to Theophilus, he not only says... I've done the homework and the stories are legit and true. They're verifiable. But he's also saying the one that we're writing about, the one you've heard the stories about, this one is the one of Daniel 7. He is the one who is going to bring in, is going to be given an eternal kingdom that he shares with the saints of the Most High. That's one of his key thoughts through all of the Gospel. Let me close with this from Acts 7. It's sort of the dual nature, too, of the hope here. <clears throat> in Acts 7, another great story. Stephen, the church's first martyr. He's given this great defense of Christ and the reason why the Jews should believe in Jesus. And of course, he, like Jesus before him, is rejected. And they take him out of the city and they stone him to death. And as he's being stoned to death, he says... He says, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing. Standing at the right hand of God. Um, You know, most of the scriptures say Jesus sits in heaven. That's because his work is done. Hebrews says he sits in heaven. But I think the imagery here is, you know, if you're at a stadium watching an event and there's a big play, what do you do instinctively? You just rise to your feet to see. Well, Stephen's being martyred. He's laying down his life and uh, Jesus rises to to watch. Um, So uh, what I love about this is here's Stephen, the first martyr, and when he's dying, he sees heaven opened and he sees Jesus there. Jesus, think of Daniel 7. Well, Jesus is there now. And you know, for Jews, this is a big deal, right? If you're going to come and promise me that you're the Messiah and my hope should be in you, why should I believe you? But Stephen says he's there in heaven. He is the Jewish hope in heaven. Jesus is it. 
but also for us as Gentiles, most of us are Gentiles, non-Jewish. Jesus is one of us. You know, it's interesting, if you read in Matthew's genealogy, Matthew makes it clear, hey, Jesus is a descendant of David and Abraham. Because Matthew's written primarily to tell Jews he's the Jewish Messiah. Count on it. But Luke's genealogy in Luke chapter 3 goes how far back? goes all the way back and it says he's the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke's making sure that you and I can say Jesus is my hope too. He's not just a Jewish Messiah. He's my hope as well. So for Stephen, when he sees heaven open, our representative has made it home. So your hope and mine, we have a credible account. Guys, it doesn't get any more credible. It's only time that separates us. And our man, the Son of Man, he's there. And he's received the kingdom. And all that we're waiting for is his return to implement that reign on earth and then ultimately that eternal kingdom that the King and the saints of the Most High inherit forever and ever and ever. Guys, there's no problem with the texts of the Scriptures, the integrity of the Scriptures, they'll stand up to all scrutiny. And at the end of the day, it's really, are we willing to believe them and commit our hope and our future to the Son of Man, the one who said, I'm it. And I'm going to rule that eternal kingdom and I'm going to take all those who believe in me with me. And so where are you at? Where do you stand? Do you claim Jesus as the Son of Man, your future and your hope? It's the only way to get there. Father, thanks that your word is true, that we can count on it every line. Lord, thanks that we have a Savior received in heaven in your presence now. Lord, who cares so much about us, he stands when his servant Stephen is giving his life in testament to who he is and what he did. Lord, would you help us to bear witness to Jesus as well. Lord, would you fix in us that hope of the certain expectation we have that one day we will see him, we'll be like him, and we'll rule and reign with him forever. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Would you help us to glorify him? Amen.